what a great time to be here. By the way, does Dave Spencer still work here? Every time I come, he's gone. I don't know what the deal is. Dave and I do keep in touch uh, periodically, and I'm just thrilled to hear uh, the thing that, things that God continues to do at Seneca Community. Every time Lois, by the way, I did bring my trophy wife with me, Lois, and uh, every time we come, it just feels like we're coming home again, and we thank you so much for allowing us to uh, continue on in your lives, even though it's been, I think, 11 years or so since we were uh, since we started here, at least. Well, this past Thursday, a big day, Thanksgiving. Hopefully you had an opportunity to, to think about things you're truly grateful for and maybe you can share those things with other people. Lois and I are grateful to be back here again. We get to uh, see our kids. Our son, Chris, and his family live in Syracuse and their five children. So it's nice to be here today. And... Um, <laughs> no, we're, we really are having a fantastic time. Went over to Skinny Atlas yesterday. We like the Dickens stuff over there, and, and it's just been a great time. Um, of all the things that you're grateful for, how many of you are grateful that the election season for this year is done? All right. We all found something we can truly agree about, and we have to worry about it again until 2024, which is like started already. Um, so many candidates. I'm going to vent a little bit with you today. I hope it's okay. Then I leave, so it'll be fine. But it seems to me like so many candidates, more than ever before, are trying to normalize and legalize behaviors that are clearly contrary to biblical truth and morality. Um, sins, things that used to be done in secret, things that people were ashamed of are now promoted in public, and we're even asked to vote on those things. Things like the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage and now even biological gender. Who would have thought it? We've got to be living in the last days, folks. A few passages came to mind that way, but I'm just going to point your attention to one from 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Paul says, in the last days, times will be full of danger. Men will become utterly self-centered, greedy for money, full of big words. They will be proud and contemptuous without any regard for what their parents taught them. They will be utterly lacking in gratitude, purity, and normal human affections. They will be men of unscrupulous speech and have no control of themselves. They will be passionate and unprincipled, treacherous, self-willed, and conceited, loving all the time what gives them pleasure instead of loving God. They will maintain a facade of religion, but their conduct will deny its validity. You must keep clear of people like this. How in the world do you do that in the world that we're living in? Because of the moral filth in our country and really in our world, I thought that we could use kind of a course correction today and focus our minds and hearts on the holiness of God. Holiness, I'm calling God's... By the way, you have an outline in your bulletin if you haven't found that yet. Among other things, you can fill in a few blanks, and then you also know how close to the end I am. Services still here go till 1, 2 o'clock, something like that? Okay, good. Things haven't changed. Good. Holiness, I'm calling God's most prominent attribute because that is what most impressed the privileged few who got to be in his presence to see God face to face. So today, if you'll allow it, we're going to spend some time in the lofties, all right? going to rise above where we are, and we're going to spend some time focusing on things that are above. 
to get a glimpse of the idea of holiness. And then we're going to consider the difference that God's holiness can and should make in our lives. Passage today from Isaiah 6. I'll bring out my Bible, like many of you have. I'm reading from the uh, NIV, which a friend of mine called the nearly inspired version. I, you know, he likes some other ones better, but you know. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at his voice, at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand and he, that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Lord, I do pray that we'll be able to transcend today to get the view that you want to give us of where you are and more of who you are. And I pray your richest blessing on us all as we spend this time in your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Well, let's look first of all at the essence of holiness. What is holiness? And the key word there is the word separation. Holiness is separation. That's the original root. It actually means to cut or to sever, to be disconnected, to be completely separated. In referring to a, a gifted, accomplished musician, we might say, she's a cut above the rest. When we describe world-class athletes like Patrick Mahomes, we'll say they're in the, he's in a league of his own. The idea is that there are, these are the people who set the standard in their area of expertise, and the rest of the world just kind of gazes at them from a distance. They're separated from the average and even from the accomplished. Their greatness attracts us, but greatness also intimidates us when we compare ourselves to them. Now, those are woefully pale illustrations of the separateness or the holiness of our God. By definition, he is in a class by himself as seen in his exalted position. Isaiah wrote, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. Isaiah in the Old Testament and John in the New Testament were given personalized tours of the ultimate throne room. And then they tried to convey what they uh, saw surrounding God, but it was almost beyond description. We heard Isaiah's attempt here in Isaiah chapter 6. Now listen to John's attempt in Revelation chapter 4. By the way, we've sung parts of this today. I hope you can flash back to some of the things that we've just sung. But Revelation chapter 4. I was in spirit there in heaven and saw, oh, the glory of it, a throne and someone sitting on it. Great bursts of light flashed forth from him as from a glittering diamond and from a shining ruby and a rainbow glowing like an emerald circled his throne. 
24 smaller thrones surrounded him with 24 elders sitting on them, and all were clothed in white with golden crowns upon their heads. By the way, keep that in mind if you ever have elders in this church. That's the way they should dress. Keep working on those white robes and those crowns. Lightning and thunder issued from the throne, and there were voices in the thunder. Directly in front of his throne were seven lighted lamps, representing the sevenfold spirit of God. Spread out before it was a shiny crystal sea. Four living beings dotted front and back with eyes stood at the throne's four sides. The first of these living beings was in the form of a lion. The second looked like an ox. The third had the face of a man, and the fourth the form of an eagle with wings spread out uh, as though in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and the central sections of their wings were covered with eyes. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty is the one who was and is and is to come. You could actually take the word holy and put it in front of any one of God's attributes as we understand them. His holy omnipotence, his holy immutability, his holy omnipresence, his holy omniscience, his power and consistency and presence and wisdom are all in a class by themselves. They're separated. You can't use those words to describe anyone else except God, especially when you put the word holy in front of it because it, it's high, higher than that, totally in a class by himself. And it's from this exalted throne that God creates and sustains and governs all things in this universe. Trying to look at it, let alone trying to comprehend it, would put a crick in your neck. You ever gone to an air show and been looking up for a long period of time and the preaching says, God is so high and exalted, it would put a crick in our neck. Have you ever been in any place that was so bright, so brilliant, that your eyes watered? That's what it's like to try to gaze on the holiness of God from that angle and from that brightness. If I were to step into God's exalted throne room, the overriding thought would be, I don't belong here. I'm in way over my head. And I'd join Isaiah and John on the floor, literally covering my head and pleading for mercy. God is in a class by himself, separated from us due to his exalted position, but also because of his moral perfection. And this is the refrain that all of the people around the throne are singing or saying constantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. If we were to stumble into Buckingham Palace or the Oval Office, we would be impressed by the trappings of wealth and power. Soldiers standing at attention and bands striking up a chorus of hail to the chief or God save the king. But despite all the power, pomp, and circumstance surrounding the first family and the royal family, those families are anything but morally perfect, aren't they? After centuries, there's talk of ending the monarchy because of the scandals that have just followed the Windsors and been part of the Windsors' life wherever they have gone. Scandals among our own government leaders have brought great national embarrassment and shame on our country. Now, I think we need to give them respect because of their position in leadership. 
but we don't have to respect their character. We don't have to respect their character if it's out of sorts with, with God. Just as our God is separated from everyone else due to his exalted position, so is he in his moral perfection because God is holy. Here's the word again. God is pure. That's the attributes that most impress the seraph angels in Isaiah 6, the 24 elders and four living creatures in Revelation 4. That complete goodness is often illustrated in the Bible by brilliant blinding light in contrast to darkness. Have you ever walked into a dark room and been there for a while and then suddenly the lights are turned on and you're like that? That's what it would be like and what it will be like to come into the presence of Almighty God. 1 Timothy 6.16. He makes his home in matchless, blinding, brilliant light that no one can approach. No mortal has ever seen him and no human can. 1 John 1.5. God is pure light undimmed by darkness of any kind. There is no hidden or dark side to God's character. During the election cycle, we know what comes out. We know all the digging that goes on. And all of this stuff, these rumors become realities and things that have gone on in their past and going on in their life. One side is trying to cover them up. The other side is trying to expose them. But try as you want. That will never happen with God's character. Because there is nothing but light. There's nothing but purity. There's nothing but holiness in him. One of the things that proved Jesus' divinity was his moral perfection, his holiness. He lived in a human body for those 33 plus years. He experienced every limitation, every temptation that we do. He impressed people with his parables and certainly with his miracles, but also with his character. His moral perfection was attested by angels and men, friends and enemies. When Gabriel the angel first approached Mary to tell her she was going to have a baby, Luke 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy Child developing inside you will be called the Son of God. Pilate, after interrogating Jesus all night in this public place, at the end of all of that, this is what he said, told the chief priests in the crowd, I don't find him guilty of anything. I can't uncover anything in his character that makes him guilty of anything. And then, of course, the thief on the cross, talking to the other thief on the cross, crucified at the same time Jesus was. Luke 23, he said to the other thief, you and I are guilty. We deserve to die because we did wrong, but this man has done nothing wrong. Hebrews chapter 4. We have a high priest who can feel it when we are weak and hurting. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are, but he did not sin. It's interesting that when men try to create gods for themselves, the moral perfection is not there. The holiness is not there. The gods of Greek mythology stationed on Mount Olympus were always fighting among themselves. They uh, argued over who was the greatest, the most beautiful, the most powerful. Their sexual exploits between themselves and with earthly men and women were positively obscene. These mythical gods were man's attempt to bring God down 
to our level. To bring him down to our level because it's too blinding and too brilliant to be in the presence of God. So we need to refashion a God that lives just like we do. Rather than trying to ascend to that higher level where God is. Psalm 24 verse 3. He restores my soul, guiding me in the paths of righteousness so that his name may be glorified. There is an enormous gap, a separation between the moral perfection of God and the sinfulness of mankind. It's impossible for a holy God to perform or tolerate any sinfulness. So when he comes in contact, he either has to do one of two things. Destroy the sinner or eradicate the sin. Because he is holy. Because he is holy. Habakkuk chapter 1. Your eyes are too holy to look at evil. And you cannot stand the sight of people doing wrong. Psalm 11, 4 through 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord sits on his throne in heaven. He sees everything that happens he watches people closely. The Lord examines those who are good and those who are wicked. He hates those who, who enjoy hurting others. He will make hot coals and burning sulfur fall like rain on the wicked. They will get nothing but a hot burning wind. The Lord always does what is right and he loves seeing people do right. Those who live good lives will be with him. God despises the sin the way that a loved one or a doctor despises cancer or despises HIV. Well, today we'd say de despises COVID. And that hatred and love drove him to provide a cure, drove him to provide a cleansing. And that thought leads us to the from the essence of his holiness to the expression of his holiness, which is that big word, sanctification. Sanctification. To sanctify means to set apart, to cleanse, to make holy, to make healthy. Under the Mosaic law, uh, was provided several temporary bridges between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. We're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given so that people at least would see what totally righteous behavior looked like, what morality looked like. The priesthood was established. By the way, the word priest actually means bridge. And so the priests were mediators between God and man to build a bridge between man and God. Sacrifice system. Sacrifices could be offered to atone for sin to highlight the fact that there was a debt to be paid, there was a cost to be paid for the eradication of sin. Detailed instructions for personal holiness are listed in Leviticus 11 through 15. Feasts were established to celebrate the cleansing which God offered. The tabernacle and temple were erected to illustrate the holiness of God, especially in that special place called the holiness, Holy of Holies that was separated, remember, by a veil veil. But all these actions and objects would become empty rituals unless something took place in the very soul of a person. Somehow we need to be so overwhelmed by the holiness of God that we become devastated by the hideousness of our sin. 
And that's exactly what happened to Isaiah when he found himself in God's throne room. Scroll up again, depending on what device you're using, to verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 6. It says, the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That was without a doubt dramatic conviction. Woe is me. I am ruined as I come into the presence of God. How many of you have ever been in an earthquake? I don't mean a a wimpy northeast earthquake. I'm talking about a California earthquake. All right, six point whatever on the Richter scale. Several years ago, the staff at our church in Portland, Oregon, was attending a conference in Mission Viejo, California. And I remember waking up just after five in the morning uh, on a Sunday morning, and I thought I had the flu because the room was moving. Um, By the way, the room was the 19th floor of the Marriott Hotel. And it didn't take me long to figure out that uh, this was not a virus because the entire structure was swaying and rolling and creaking. Now, I grew up in California, and I knew that the safest place to, to go in an earthquake is to under a door jam, okay, a little extra thing there. So you go and, and hide under that door jam. So I stood in the one between the room and the bathroom. It's interesting to see how differently people react when you go through something like that, especially if you've never been through it before. Our women's ministry director, when the earthquake came, she called her husband in Portland, she packed her bags, and she went and checked out of the hotel immediately. Uh, One fun-loving associate just kind of sat back and enjoyed the ride and thought he was back at Disneyland again. I'm not sure that our cool, calm, and collected administrator even woke up. And then we had a worship pastor who was excitable. And he ended up, he knew about the door jam thing, but he thought he had to go to the one between his room and the hallway, and he got stuck in the hallway because his room was locked. Uh, We'll just say underdressed. (laughs) But I have to tell you in all false modesty that I was relaxed. I was level headed. Matter of fact, I wavered. Should I go back to sleep again? Or maybe I'll get up uh, for the day. And so I showered and shaved and dressed and thought I'd maybe catch an early breakfast down there and and then uh, watch the news. As I'm getting off the elevator, our women's ministry director is waiting for me there with her hat on. Hat, just like this. And I said, you know, Joyce, um, it doesn't look like any of the restaurants are open yet. And she said, restaurants? Eat? We're going to die. Very calm about the whole thing. I reacted like many veteran Californians who've been through these tremors. I don't know, but dying. (laughs) Just a little old earthquake. It was 7.2 on the Richter scale, but no big thing. I think these are like the people who've failed to take precautions, have lost respect for the, the enormous damage that an earthquake can do. Almost laugh in the face of this demonstration of God's power. When Isaiah saw God's holiness and he went through the earthquake, he instantly humbled himself before God. He knew he was in a dangerous place. So he put himself in the safest position possible 
and that is being prostrate before God. Those of you who are old enough remember these words when we went through the drills in school. Duck and cover. That's what I really believe. Duck and cover. All of this stuff is going on, and he is in the presence of holy God, and he knows he's a sinner. You know, more than a few of us have been through some inspiring worship events and maybe some traumatic experiences in our life. Matter of fact, maybe we've been through enough that we're kind of nonchalant about it. Either God doesn't seem as holy or we don't seem all that sinful or the stakes of our sinful actions don't seem that high. I mean, we all make little mistakes. We commit boo-boos. No big thing. And we forget that one sin was enough to banish Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. And we forget that one sin, uh, one sin was enough to keep Moses from entering the promised land. And we forget that one son, a sin cost Ananias and Sapphira their very lives when they tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. So it's like we kind of settle down in the spiritual suburbs, living a comfortable life, resisting any challenge to greater growth or greater service. I want to talk with some of you dear brothers and sisters in Christ who have maybe gotten complacent, if not downright rebellious, before a holy God. What will it take to reduce us to tears or brokenness before a holy God? Maybe if we have a really, really moving Christmas program like this here. I mean, the kind that where you turn the volume up on the sound and the drums beat and the smoke blows in and the lighting flickers and all that kind of stuff. Maybe that'll get to us. Maybe some devastating loss of health or job or family member, the loss of home, the loss of investments, would finally get our attention in the presence of a holy God. Whatever God allows in our lives, it's always meant to capture our attention and to continue the work of sanctification, which is making us holy. Making us holy. 1 Peter chapter 1. Be holy now in everything you do, just as the Lord is holy, who invited you to be his child. He himself has said, you must be holy, for I am holy. Hebrews chapter 12, our fathers disciplined us as they thought best, yet God disciplines us for our own good so that we can become holy like him. We don't enjoy being disciplined. It always seems to cause more pain than joy, but later on, those who learn from that discipline have peace that comes from doing what is right. Isaiah humbled himself before God in the midst of this trauma, experiencing a fiery cleansing. Now take a moment to think about what is recorded in this text. An angel takes tongs and goes to the altar and gets a burning coal out of it. And uh, think about your barbecue and briquettes and they've been fired up to where they're going from red hot to white hot and uh, you take one out angel puts it in his hand and he puts it on Isaiah's mouth that would raise one monster blister wouldn't it here the sizzle hot 
burning coals. This was not a remote ritual. It emphasized the greatness of Isaiah's sin and the completeness of the cleansing that God was doing in his life. For a moment there, Isaiah would certainly think that the cure was worse than the disease. It's important to understand that the atonement or payment was the animal offered on the altar. See, that's it's the animal. It wasn't the searing of the lips that was the atonement. It was, it was what happened when the animal was placed on the altar. But the touching of the live coal to the prophet's lips drove home the point that cleansing must be personal and it can be painful. Compare it to painful therapy, which often precedes emotional healing. Several years ago, I went to a Christian psychologist for about six months. We were dealing with some issues in our church and in our family. And uh, so I went in, and this is a totally new experience because I'm, I'm the guy that's usually listening to that stuff, right? Not sharing it with somebody else. And so we're sitting there talking. I'm not thinking too much about it. I thought, well, this is interesting. I spent an hour talking about me to this guy, and he's paid to listen. The next day, I was sore. I mean, my insides were sore. I didn't realize that there was physical pain connected with an emotional process that I was going through at the time. Well, compare it to painful surgery, which precedes physical healing. I had a rotator cuff removal of Winston a few years ago. And uh, to tell you the truth, I, I mean, it, there was some pain and soreness there, and the doc said I needed to have it fixed surgically, and so they fixed it under, and the surgery wasn't that painful at all. But it took about six months of physical therapy, and that was. That was. I had the nicest physical therapist, sweet, red-headed gal. She smiled every time she hurt me. Is really good for you. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it, doesn't it? I understand. Safe to say that while salvation is often painless, sanctification rarely is. This is especially true if you came to Christ as a child or a teenager. You were kind of brought up to believe certain things. Uh, these things were true, and then you decided to take that almost natural step of faith. Sure, I can pray that prayer. Sure, I can get baptized. No problem. Now, if you came to Christ as an adult, it may have been a little bit more painful, kind of letting go of some established thinking patterns and maybe sinful habits. But sanctification, being made holy or Christ-like in our character and conduct, is usually very difficult, these steps along the way. Let me give you some examples of what some of those things are. It may involve confrontation and reconciliation with people when you would rather ignore the situation completely. I remember that from about 11 or 12 years ago here. We went through some reconciliation exercises, didn't we? Some individual times. And I, I was so impressed with the people willing to do that and part of that. It's hard work, it's fun work. But that's a step towards sanctification. It may involve walking by faith and trusting God when everything seems to be falling apart around you your business, your health, those kinds of things. Am I going to go into this for it? Or am I going to trust God through this? Am I going to continue to walk with God through this? That's, those are step, that's a step of sanctification, to continue to trust God even when everything looks so dark. It may mean standing alone for your faith or your convictions in a hostile office or even in a family environment, even though I 
But when you do that, with your faith and those convictions that come along with it, that's a step towards sanctification. We get stronger as a result of doing things. This is another one of those uh, poems by that famous author, Anonymous. Have you heard some of his stuff before? Well, thank you for that. This is it. And it's simply entitled, God Knows What He's About. Maybe you've heard it before. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world might be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay that only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him. With mighty acts induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. I may be talking to some of you today whose mouth is almost burning because God has been working in your life to cleanse some impurity, some unholiness. Now, the blood of Jesus Christ has totally atoned for your sins, so don't confuse this painful process with penance. But in order to make you more like uh, Jesus, there may be some fiery cleansing along the way because whatever God touches he cleanses. Whatever God touches, he cleanses. He sanctifies it. A holy God can only do what is right and good and healthy and helpful for us, even when it's painful. And that leads to a final aspect of this most prominent of God's attributes, which is the expectation of his holiness, which is submission. Submission. The result of true holiness will be seen in our progressive submission to his will in at least these two areas. Verse 1, we'll see a difference in worship, heartfelt worship. After that dramatic, traumatic encounter with the most holy God, I'm sure Isaiah never went through another worship service on autopilot. Every verse of holy, holy, holy must have brought back that dazzling vision of God on the throne, surrounded by the angels. Nobody had to give him permission to fall on his knees or to fall on his face and duck and cover in God's presence. Looking at the coals on the altar of sacrifice must have made his lips burn again as he offered prayer and praise to God. Our highest calling, what God is trying to do in all of our lives, is to turn us into genuine heartfelt worshipers. That's our highest calling, to be genuine, heartfelt worshipers. I don't mean by that that we become connoisseurs or critics of rhythms and rituals, but humble adorers of our God. If you come to a worship service kind of detached from the experience, there's a few reasons for that. Perhaps you've never been born again into the family of God through faith in Jesus. And the solution, of course, is to make that commitment to him as your savior. Perhaps you're harboring a, a resentment against someone that you need to forgive or from whom you need forgiveness. We have this very practical instruction in Matthew chapter 5. If you enter your place of worship, 
about to make an offering and you suddenly remember that a grudge, a friend, uh, remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. Perhaps you're resisting the deeper working of God in your life, this sanctification, making you holy. Kind of wanting to keep him at arm's length. Don't really want to deal with some obvious area of rebellion or pride in me. And the solution is to begin praying and confessing and praising him by faith in response to his word. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, we should never stop offering our sacrifice to God. That sacrifice is our praise coming from lips that speak his name. It really is an act of worship when we praise God when we don't feel like it. When we adore him, when we worship him, when we don't emotionally feel like it. We're just kind of out of it. But when we do that, God sees that as a sacrifice of praise. We're doing something that is going against our emotional brain in order to honor him. Can you imagine what these services would be like Sunday after Sunday if the room were filled with heartfelt worshipers? Can you imagine the impact on seekers, nominal believers, when we were here all those years ago, we invited our landlord, our landlady, I should say, to church. I guess you can still say that, can't you? Anyway, we invited our landlady to church. And after church, we took her out to lunch. <clears throat> we said, uh, she was not a church-going lady. What was your impression? Give us an, an outsider's perspective on what you experienced. She said, I was blown away watching people lift their hands and sing and pray. It was amazing. Something about the worship of people who truly love God and are submitted to him that caught her attention at that moment. And I believe that if this room were constantly, consistently filled with heartfelt worshipers, it would send seekers either running out the door or running to embrace Jesus. It has that kind of magnetic effect depending on which pole you're looking at. It either attracts or it repels. I'm going to close with one more obvious evidence of our submission to the holy God, and that is humble service. As this worship service came to a close, the Lord offered an invitation. Now, if you read the passage, you'll see that what's interesting about this invitation at the end was that there was only one person in the audience. Remember, remember, uh, imagine coming to church and there's terrible storm. But Dave makes it here. He's got his sermon and he's ready to preach. And there's one person in the audience. And he's coming into uh, the offering. Or he's coming into that invitation to do something to move closer to the Lord. And you can't sit there and think, I wonder who he's thinking about right now. I wonder who this message is meant for. I wonder who will respond. And uh, God, in the presence of one audience member, says to all of us, who will go? Who will go? Whom shall I send in this vast audience? Who will I send? Isaiah 
I guess it's me. I guess it's me. But Isaiah didn't need to be coached. He didn't, uh, didn't need time to think about it or even to pray about it. I mean, when it's the right thing, you just do it. And by the way, Isaiah's assignment, God gave him an assignment. You know what the assignment was? It was to preach God and repentance to a country that would not respond in his lifetime. That was his assignment. He said, Isaiah, I want you to spend the rest of your life talking about me, and nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to respond. But that's what I'm commanding you to do. That's what I signed up for. See, it was important that Isaiah get that message into the record. Okay? And the, the message that Isaiah preached went into the record even though nobody responded in his lifetime. We've opened the book of Isaiah today. And we see that people are responding to God because of the things that he wrote. Now, this is a hard word in every generation, but I think especially in our century. Commitment seems unreasonable when we are much more centered on comfort and convenience. So when God calls, we have an advantage today, by the way. Remember, remember the old days when you had to actually answer the phone to see who was on the other end? Remember that? Tell your children about it. They would be interested in hearing that story. They'd see it on an old movie somewhere. But now what happens when we get a call? What do we look for? Caller ID, right? Okay, <laughs> who's calling? Now, some of them just come now. They're, they're getting really good about this. Um, maybe you've gotten uh, some calls from somebody called Scam Likely. We've been getting a few calls from Scam Likely lately. But sometimes it, <clears throat> you don't recognize the number at all and say, well, I'll just let that go to voicemail. And sometimes when you look at caller ID and you do know who's calling, <laughs> you let it go to voicemail. I'll check that out later or I'll forget about it. So when God calls, he gets our voicemail. Now, please leave your number after the tone, God. I'll get back to you soon. Shalom. And you're right. I mean, if we do commit to some ministry, God is calling inside or outside the church. We say, okay, as long as I get appreciation, as long as people cooperate with me, as long as I'm compensated for it, and of course, as long as there's some success related to that so that I can feel good about myself for what I'm doing, God, then I might consider. I might consider it. And so we commit, and it doesn't happen quickly or easily. And... Um, we say, I'm out of here. I quit. I resign. Somebody else can take this over. We're wrapping this up. I want to ask a couple of questions. We've been talking about the holiness of God today. Who are you serving? Are you serving yourself or the living God? Where are you, ser are you serving? What's your assignment? And I can guarantee every one of us has at least one assignment. And maybe more than that. And if you come to a place like this and have an encounter with a holy God, or wherever you may encounter him, there is only one response. Is 
as far as he's concerned, there's only one person in the audience. That's me. And the only appropriate response. I'm here. Come to me. Bow to me. Jesus, it is my pleasure to be in this place. Pleasure to share these things from your word in such a powerful context. And Lord, I do pray for this dear congregation, Lois, and I love us here very much. We thank you for the good work that's going on here, but I know that there's more that you want to do. I know that there's more to Pastor Dave and the deacons want to see happen here in the lives and through the total ministry of this church. And I pray that you would give each one the attitude of an Isaiah to allow you do, to do that important work, that deeper work of making us holy, making us truly heartfelt worshipers and adorers of yours. And then also as humble servants, whatever it is you're calling us to do right now, I pray that we'll be obedient to that call. And I ask these things in the wonderful and strong and holy name of Jesus. Amen.